Let me go back historically in my life anyway. My Meredith and I just, um, <clears throat> we had just been married, and maybe two years into our marriage, maybe two and a half, and I had been asked to oversee a, a crew, and one of the guys that's working for me had said he had to, to go and help his sister out. So we're in Phoenix, Arizona. He goes all the way up to Flagstaff, and I get a call from him. And he says, Mike, here I am. Here's my situation. I need $300. Can you please wire me $300? And I, I said, you know what? I'm going to talk with my wife. I think we can do that. And God had been really prospering and blessing what I was doing with this technical thing. And so we, we talked, we prayed, and I wired him $300. Never saw the guy again. His sister called me and said, did you get a call from my brother? Because he's an alcoholic, and he lied to, he's been lying to, to, in order to get money, and I don't know where he got this $300. He said, yeah, well, he said it to him. God provided, though, and made up for that. Fast forward many more years, we're wanting to make an investment in a rental home. We see some things, an opportunity in Branson, Missouri, and we put $2,000 down, it's going to the title company, everything's set, and the title company says, this guy walked away embezzling millions of dollars, and we have nothing that we can show you that you're gone. Now, I don't know what happened to the guy who was supposed to go to court, blah, 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 but there we go, we left. I want to ask you, have you ever felt cheated, robbed? You felt like, man, the devil just came in and stole that. Maybe you trusted someone was telling the truth. Or maybe you believed that what you held on to, that this was the truth. And then that truth, that foundation just got shaken. And it's like, wow, what on earth happened? And, and, you're, and you just feel like you're upside down. And you're wondering, okay, God, where are you in all of this? You feel sucker punched. When I had a crisis of faith at 20 years of age, following the Lord for six years, and just had been, I was walking closely with God, and suddenly all of these questions, as I'm going to school, all of these questions are coming to me. And I didn't like walk away from God, but it was like, God, how do I know? What if I'm giving myself to something that's not true? And at the end of my life, I have no God to stand before because there's nothing out there. I guess that would just, it would be, there would be nothingness. That's it. I guess no opportunity for disappointment. And I just began asking these questions, and I said, you know what? I don't want to be sucker punched spiritually. What I believe, I want to be convinced that that is the truth. And my wife to be asking, well, have you read Dr. James Kennedy's book, Why I Believe? And I said, never heard of it. I know the guy, never heard of it. So she gave me her copy of the book which we still have, by the way. And I read through it, and I want to tell you, my jaw dropped. I was halfway through. My jaw dropped. I, I thought, I have never known, and I've been walking with Christ for you, I've never known that there was so much evidence for the Christian faith. This Bible, this is true, and I know it's true. And from that moment on, I just had a passion for studying what's called evidential apologetics. I love it. In our passage today, Jesus is going to throw out like a bombshell. And it's like this aha moment for some of them. And at the last verse, you're going to see some of them believed in Jesus. 
But others were like, you got to be kidding me. And it only added, it only threw fuel on the fire for their motives to, to kill Jesus. I want to ask you something. Have you ever given your life or, or some aspect that would represent your life, maybe money, and you just realize, wow, what a waste. What a waste. Do you want to end up at the end of your life just saying, what a waste? I know this is one guy who, uh, his name's Bruno. Many of you know him. Some of you don't. But right there on my living room floor, there he, I, I asked, is there anyone who you want to pray, be prayed for to receive the Spirit? And he raised his hand. And I was like, this guy is not walking with the Lord at all. He was into all kinds of stuff. And then he just, you walk around, I said, Bruno, you realize what you're, what you're communicating now. We're going to pray for you because this is it. You're surrendering to Jesus. And he fell down on the floor. And when he was done, snotting all over my carpet and crying and crying, he said, why have I wasted my life? Church, you never want to have those kind of regrets. Why have I wasted my life? I'm going to just tell you right now. I'm going to give you a little down. I'm going to read the passage. We're in. John 8, starting with verse 12, I'm going to read only through verse 31, or excuse me, verse 30. But there's a little hint that John gives, and if you're not careful, you're, going to, you're just going to breeze right by it, and you're not going to see it. He gives a hint that Jesus is telling them, look what all that you have given, and for what? Oh. I'm going to start reading that passage right now. John 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. This is something that Jesus brought up earlier. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where's your Father? Do you not, excuse me, you do not know me or my Father. Who's he talking to, church? He's talking to Pharisees, Pharisees the religious leaders of his day. There's Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees, for the most part, were the chief priests. They were in the priest realm. Pretty much because they inherited that. But they they only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe any of the books were inspired. They didn't believe in that humans had a spirit. They didn't believe they were angels. They didn't believe in the natural life, etc. The Pharisees at least did, and they mostly were the experts in teaching the law. They were the ones who kind of got down with the rest of the people and taught them. Though they observed more the letter of the law than the heart of the law. Nicodemus was one of those. Jesus replied, if you knew me, you would know my father also. 
He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offering was put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, and I am of, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I had been claiming to be, claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and the NIV adds, the one I claim to be. And that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Here we go. Verse 30. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. As you recall back in chapter 7, this incident takes place, chapter 7, takes place on the, at the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, which is about six months before the Passover in which Jesus died. This is a continuation of that very same feast. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's teaching the Pharisees. He's teaching the Jews. He's teaching the people. And he challenges them, and he lays out some truths here. The, the first one he lays out is that he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus himself is the light of the world. And this light is the light of life. Now, throughout John, we recognize that John uses this word, or you could say Jesus does as well, but he uses the word light as a metaphor for truth. You know, when, when I was doing this pest control business out in Phoenix, Arizona, Phoenix, for some reason, just has a lot of problems with roaches. I, I mean, I'm not saying that we don't hear, but they were big enough to saddle and ride. They were huge. They were everywhere. You had to have a pest control service if you could, in, in order to control the roaches. And I was this guy who would go door to door, and I had guys working with me. We'd go door to door selling pest control. There's a lot of, you could tell if they had black widows, you could tell if they had problems with crickets, chirping at their door, wanting in, I guess, I don't know, feed me, feed me. But you could tell, you, you couldn't tell if they had roaches, so you have to ask them, do you have a problem with roaches? Because I can see that you have some of these other problems. And many times they would say, well, yeah, look at the wife, I guess so. And so I would ask a follow-up question. So tell me, like, late at night when you turn the light switch in the kitchen on, how many roaches do you see? I don't know, about half a dozen. <laughs> now, one or two is bad enough. But when you have half a dozen to a dozen, and I can't say there's many people who have problems like that. But... They had a serious problem. I could tell you some horror stories about text going inside, but I'm not. <laughs> when you turn the light on, the light reveals what's really there that you can't see without the light being on. 
Because light reveals the truth. So John regularly uses light as this metaphor of truth. And he many times contrasts it with lies. And he's going to do this um, halfway. Not I'm, We're not going to get into that ne- this week, but next week. Satan is the father of lies. But right now he's building this case that he is the light of the world. If you just listen to him, you will be able to see clearly what is spiritual truth and what is spiritual lies. Death. The devil speaks the lies. And God speaks the truth. And Jesus is declaring, he's not just speaking the truth. He actually is the truth. That whatever he speaks, he only speaks what the Father tells him. And he only does what he sees the Father doing. What a unique relationship the Son of God has with his heavenly Father. And so here he is declaring that he is this type of truth. This life, this light, this truth about life isn't just, it's not religious life. It's not, you know, what you're supposed to wear when you go to synagogue. It's not how many times a day you should pray. This life is not about all the religious trappings. This life that he's talking about is all of life. Every aspect of doing life, we need to do it according to the truth. We need to do it according to what Jesus says. Then they come back because they don't like this. Like, where are you coming from? You're the light of the you're the light of life. And then so they 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 try to find an angle in it to kind of kick Jesus' legs out from under because Jesus said that he doesn't bear he he, he does not bear witness to the truth by himself. So now they confront him. Here you are, giving your own personal testimony. And Jesus confronts them. And he says, You know what, guys? You probably missed the boat somewhere. I'm sure if you look between the lines in the Greek, you find that. You must have missed the boat somewhere. Do you not remember John the Baptist? Do you not remember my miracles? Because in chapter 2, just a few years earlier, the same people probably were there, the Pharisees, Jews, the leaders, the, the, the crowds of people, and he did miracles, many miracles. They saw the miracles. This is why, in the very next chapter, John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And Nicodemus says, wow, like, you've got to be from God. And this is a religious leader. You know, when I get to heaven, I want to find out Jesus, Nicodemus' entire testimony. What was it like when you first saw Jesus doing the miracles? How did that impact you? Why did you go to him at night? And then what did you really get from that? When did Jesus really change your life? I want to I ask him. I want to find out. I'm curious. But his life was changed. He comes up three times in the book of John. But Jesus says, hey, there's John the Baptist. There's my miracles. And then, of course, there's the Old Testament prophecies. There's scripture that attests to him. Like where he was born. That, of course, they still thought he was from Nazareth. That he would be born of a virgin. So, of course, they didn't know that either. But they knew many things. And that the Messiah would be doing miracles, proclaiming truth that they just could not deny. So they found different angles. Well, you're, you're casting out demons by Beelzebub. You know, the, the devil himself is, is doing them. <laughs> and Jesus did one of those, oy vey, really? 
So those three things testified, but he does not count any of those. And he says just two witnesses. And those two witnesses are the Father and the Son. God's testimony. God's testimony that he is the one. So regardless of what they try to do to throw up a smokescreen, they still do not get it. And Jesus finally says this, you don't even know the Father. Now I want you to feel the gravity of what Jesus just said. He basically is preaching, and he says to them, you've given your lives to teaching people truth, but you have missed the boat. You don't even know who God is. He's not even your father. Now, I want you to think, if you had just spent your entire life giving yourself to one thing, and then someone says, you totally missed the boat. You're not even close to the truth. I think you'd be pretty... And if you discovered that it was truth, you would feel separate. Wow. Then what am I giving myself to? So some of the Pharisees, some of the people are beginning to wonder, wait a second, he has done these miracles. Who is he? As a matter of fact, they ask that in verse 25. Who are you? They're not, they're not picking up stones to stone, though it does say back there in verse what, 20. It says they wanted to kill him, but his time was not now. We need to move forward here. Jesus makes numerous truth claims here, and I'm just going to run through them, and I want you to, 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 to see them. Number one, Jesus declared that he's the revealer of truth. Therefore, he's the light of the world, such as life makes sense. Because of Jesus, life makes sense. It is the revealer of truth. Our suffering has a proper place. Apart from God, suffering makes no sense. It's just the stinky stuff of life. And there's no purpose in it. If God is not the God of the universe, if all there is is just some sort of powers that be called nature that's moving and evolving us to what we don't know, that's random and has no purpose in life. Evolution has no purpose. Because nature is not God. Regardless of what you read of how evolutionists teach, they try and make it sound as if natural selection has a purpose. It does not. It's random. It has no purpose. It has no agenda because it is only a thing and cannot have any purpose in its heart. And yet somehow... We evolve, we who are consumed by this idea of purpose. But in Jesus, life makes sense. It has purpose. Life, has, we do suffering. It has a place. It has purpose. Our lives, destiny is certain. Jesus then declared that he is from the Father, and therefore he is the Son. Oh my goodness. He is the Son of God, and he reveals himself yet again as the Son next week. We're going to see this. But that means the Father has a Son. That means he is just under the top dog, if you will, the man upstairs, whatever term, God. And Jesus is answerable only to him, which means where do these Pharisees stand in all of that? Way down. They don't like this at all. Jesus is from the Father. See, he's not just sent from the Father. 
He says, see, you're from below, and I'm from where? Above. Above. I'm from God. So yes, the Father sent John the Baptist. That, that's the truth. John, John, the Gospel writer, declares that. But see, Jesus is sent in a different way. He wasn't just commissioned by the Father as John the Baptist was. He actually came from the Father. That the Father, if you will, spiritually gave, he is a part of him. So people call it the eternal generation of the Son. Okay, figure that out. But the, that Jesus has always, his person and everything flows from who the Father is. Mm -hmm. And we can't completely understand this. But he is truly from the Father. He was in heaven and he came down to this earth. That is amazing. Because he's the son. See, he's from the father. The next thing we know is that the Pharisees do not know this guy. They have given themselves to a lie, to a misunderstanding of who God is. Jesus, or John tells us, not only in his gospel, but in his letter, if you reject the son, you have rejected the father. See, if we don't accept him, if we don't believe in him, don't tell me that you truly believe in God. Excuse me, let me go a step further. When you're speaking to a Muslim or a Buddhist, now Buddhists don't believe in a God, they just believe in a power and a force. And anyone who believes in God, if they reject Jesus, then they truly do not know who God is. Only the truth is because Jesus is the full revealer of who God is, the full revealer of the Father. But they don't know him. I mean, this was their job. This was the, their occupation. They missed it. Somewhere along the way, they got sidetracked, and they ran after the letter of the law, and they got consumed by all the facts and details of the law, that they missed it. They missed the heart of the law. They missed the heart of what it means to truly have a relationship with God like Abraham did. We're going to look at Abraham next week because Jesus brings that up. They missed it. Then he says, he says to, him, to them, right there in verse 21 and on, I'm going to go away, but where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Is he going to kill himself? Another thought, well, maybe he's going to the, to the Jews, the scattered Jews, the diaspora who were scattered. Maybe he's going to them to preach. But of course they were wrong. And Jesus makes it clear. See, when I leave, you are going to die in your sins. To all these religious leaders, Jesus just told them, not only do you not know the Father, but you are going to die in your sins. Everything that you thought was true, God is, Jesus is now upending this. You're going to die in your sins. And then he goes on. See, this is truth claim number five. If you do not believe in him, for that reason, you will die in your sins. In verse 32, he says, know the truth. The truth will set you free from your sin. But see, they didn't know the truth, so they were going to die in their sin. I'm kind of throwing a lot of things at you here. But knowing this truth, church, is of utmost importance in our life. I'm going to tell you this right now. What you believe is true 
is going to guide and direct how you live this life. Let's take an atheist or an agnostic, for example. They don't believe that there's a God. They reject that truth. Consequently, morality is their own personal opinion. How do you base anything in life with no certainty about what is right and wrong? It is only their opinion. Now, the way they do government, the way they do laws is whatever the majority says, that's what we go by. But that's going to change depending on what the majority says. The majority is not God, but see, they don't care. The truth is, morality is their opinion. If you're a materialist, at least in practice, some, some people who say they believe in God, some people who claim to be Christians are materialists. So I'm just saying if a materialist, at least in practice, there is no afterlife. If, you're a, if you are a materialist, then that's all there is. You live your life as if this life is all that matters. If this life is all that matters, how do you think someone is going to live? They're going to run after money. The, the people are cogs in a wheel, and they get in the way of me accomplishing my goal, which is happiness, which is money, which is things that I want and that I can get. You maybe you know, you maybe you know people like this. That is how they view the world. People are simply a means to an end. They're an end. And they want to use these people like pawns to achieve their goals in life. This is a material. Here's a famous quote, because the boy with the cold, hard cash is always Mr. Right, because we're living in a material world, and I'm a material girl, right? Yeah. Our focus is short-sighted. People are pawns. What if you believe, or what if you just believe in religion? What if you're merely religious? No relationship with God, but you're religious. You do the outward things, and you do them well. You go to church regularly. You might even dress up Sunday morning or Saturday night. You do the religious thing. You might even tie. See, that was me. You might even follow the house rules, like no cussing. You know, I, I couldn't even say hell, meaning the real place. <laughs> All right, there are other certain words that were just banned in my house. On the outward, I look like a good boy. I really did. I was so lost. What about that? What if we give ourselves to religion? So all we're doing is giving head nod to the rules to keep them, but usually to balance out our mistakes, okay, our sins, okay, what Jesus calls our rebellion. Mm-hmm. See, we do the good things thinking. See, if I just do enough good things, I'm good with God. That's the religionist. That's the religious person. That's why they do the good things that they do. Maybe God will smile on me after I did all of these bad things. You've got to make it up, right? What is truth then? Whatever you believe is truth, you will live your life according to that. If you're a Christian... You're going to listen. Jesus is saying that he's the truth. And if he is the truth, then we have yet to reveal one more truth that Jesus is going to express. And he kind of concludes
includes it with this. And if you're not careful, you might miss it. It's not that thing that I mentioned in the very beginning, this little hint. I'm going to end with that. But here Jesus then says, verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. Why would someone die in their sins? He's going to tell us next week, because if you don't know the truth, then you're not going to be set free from your sins. So they're rejecting Jesus' truth, but then he says, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am, now if you look in most translations, they add something there. The NIV adds the one I claim to be. Now, in all fairness, the only Greek words that are used here that I, excuse me, if you do not believe that I am, it's a simple Greek word, ego, amen, I, I am. Like in Spanish, you might say, yo estoy, or yo soy. I, I am. That's all that's, that's in here. The word he is not in the Greek. Now, in all fairness to Greek speakers, that could be a way of saying, I am the one I came to, or I am he. But I just, I need us to know that is not what Jesus is trying to say here. He's trying, maybe he's saying it, but he's saying more. Here's why we know this. If you were to go to the very end of this chapter, Jesus is talking about his day. Like in heaven, all of heaven, including Abraham, was so anxious to see when he would come to the earth. That would blow any religious, religious leaders minds. What? You mean you're in heaven and Abraham was like looking forward to your day? You're not even 50 years old and Abraham knew you? What? And he says, he concludes with this. Listen, before Abraham was, I am. Now I want you to think about the grammatical construction of that. If you were to try and express this truth, you would have said, before Abraham was, I was. Okay, that means you actually existed before Abraham, which of course Jesus did. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. And it's just simply in the Greek, ego in a me. He's not saying before Abraham was, I am he. No, Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. What is, what is Jesus getting at? One more example. In John chapter 18, Jesus just get, finishes up with this high priestly prayer. And he goes to the Kidron Valley, across the Kidron Valley, into the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Mount of Olives. And there he is, praying and seeking God. When he arrives, shortly there, after he prays, three times, there is a band of people with clubs ready to arrest him. They are the temple guards. Judas Iscariot is there, and some others. They're there, a whole group of them, to arrest Jesus. And so Jesus asks, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And in the Greek, Jesus simply says, ego in me, I am. Now, I'm not saying he didn't mean I am he, but notice what happens. As soon as he says, I am, it's scripture tells us that they, they step backwards and they fall to the ground. 
I don't think somebody tripped over a root and, you know, with the domino, <laughs> boom, 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 one after the other. No. He declared something by saying, I am. There was a revelation of truth and thereby an expression of the very glory of God. Amen. Moses at the burning bush. Moses is wondering, okay, God, I, I know that you're, this is you, and you want me to go to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And we need to address that, by the way, God. But who should I tell them is sending me? And God's response in the Hebrew is echiah, which simply means I am. Tell them that I am sent me. Okay? I hope that works. It's not that they, and God reveals his name, Yahweh. But this is the very name of God. Echiah in the Hebrew, I am, is the root of Yahweh. That means he's the all-present one. Jesus is declaring that he is Yahweh. You're going to die in your sins because you do not believe that I am. That I am truly God. Let me just explain. Just I'm going to take a few minutes here. And um, so I'm going to be really quick here, I guess. But he, God tells us, is it 730? Is that, is that time right? 725. 725, 726. Anybody for 720? 720. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you another 10 minutes. Go ahead. <laughs> so, 15 minutes. Preach. He understands this. In, in Exodus 6, so three chapters later, he's standing, he's, he's, he's just stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh laughed, basically, and said, nothing doing. I'm sure he said it in Egyptian. But no, he wasn't going to do it. And then Moses has this, like, one-on-one time with God. And in essence, he's saying, God, I did exactly what you told me to do. What is up with this? I mean, this is supposed to be a little bit easier, isn't it? I don't believe Moses understood. God had ten plagues yet to deliver to the Egyptians as a message. He's just thinking, okay, I'm just going to, you know, put my hand in my in my vest, pull it out, it's leopard, put it back in, pull it out, and then it's now back to normal. I'm just going to take my staff, throw it on the ground, it's going to turn into a snake. This is going to wow Pharaoh, and he's going to let my people go. Well, it didn't. It did kind of buy the attention of the Hebrews, the Jews. But it didn't Pharaoh. And so he's having this talk with God. And God says, in the past you knew me as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But you will know me as Yahweh, the ever-present one. And then he goes on to tell them how he was going to come as the Redeemer of Israel. He was going to buy the people of Israel out of slavery Amen. to be his very own people. And this was going to be a picture of God as Yahweh. Yes, he was always almighty, El Shaddai. But now he is going to be that almighty God every single day of your life. He is going to give provision, which means vision in advance. And he is going to bring to you everything that you need. He brought to the man. He brought to the water. 
When the enemy rose up against him, Moses had his hands lifted up and they prevailed and destroyed the Amalekites. Every attack that they had, even when Balak, you know, Moab, wanted to curse the Israelites, he asked Balaam, hey dude, can you just like give this prophetic word and curse the Israelites, please? Sure, no problem. Balaam stands up and what comes out of his mouth over and over and over is only a blessing. And Balak says, look, what are you doing? I hired you. I paid you money to curse them, and you're only blessing them. He says, well, I can only do what God told me to do. So he blesses them instead. No more on that story. But everything that the Israelites encountered in opposition to them leaving Egypt and going to the promised land, God said, in essence, I'm going to take care of all of this. His provision. We get a little providence from this. God overseeing supernaturally, providing, and as we prayed, even with our finances, everything that we need because he's Yahweh. Amen. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the one who's going to provide. If you were to look at how God reveals himself on Mount Sinai. He declares himself Yahweh, Yahweh. And he declares, he says, I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness to the undeserving rebels like you and me even. That he is going to maintain his love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Then he contrasts that with always punishing the guilty, punishing their children to the third and fourth generation. Only because it appears that the ch our children follow in our steps. And if we have bad habits, they pick them up. And they will suffer for their own sin. And it's a generational curse that just gets passed on from one generation to the next. But if you're a follower of Jesus, God invites you to break them in your generation. So no longer does it plague the others. Thousands, thousands of generations, God loves them. But the rebels, the wicked at heart, to the third and fourth generation. There was that sense of redemptiveness even within the This is who Jesus is. Yahweh. No, do you know that when God showed him his glory on that mountain, it says right here that there was a cloud there and God stood in that cloud. That's how God would reveal himself to Moses, in a cloud. Much like in the Holy of Holies, the holy, the priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, but he did so with a sensor that would send up smoke, so he could not see the Ark of the Covenant, and therefore be shielded from the, the very glory and presence of God. And so here he is standing next to Moses, in this cloud, Declaring who he is as Yahweh. This is Yahweh. He's full of love, forgiving, regardless of your rebellion, regardless of your lack of trust, forgiveness. And what is Moses' response? He, when God is done, that's just it's a short little paragraph. He falls on his face and he worships God. What an amazing scene. And here Jesus is saying, And he says it twice in John Q. One's right there in verse 24, the other in verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son, verse 28, Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Why? After they crucified Jesus, why would they know that he is Yahweh? Because he would rise from the dead, Amen. the truth, the life. 
remain in your sin like the Pharisees were determined to do and reject the truth, he will bring punishment even for the third and fourth generation. God forbid that that would be us. I want to now just close with this. I want you to, I want to take you, how many of you have seen the movie Fireproof? You've seen the movie Fireproof. In the movie Fireproof, the main guy, What's his name? Uh, Caleb. Caleb goes for a walk with his dad into the woods. They're talking. And then they sit down at kind of like this. I think there's benches around, and they sit down there. And his dad just starts doing his talking to him. And the camera's following him. And he stops. And he talks about how Caleb, though he knows the truth, has been spitting in God's face. And what is behind the dad? It's the cross. See, this apparently was a Christian camp, and there's now there's a cross behind him. And the, Caleb looks at his dad, and then he glances up, and he says, "But that's not me. I'm not. I'm not spitting in God's face." And you see what? With the picture, he says something so very clear. This is how you're treating God. That's what's happening. Jesus is teaching. And then John just gives us this little incidental, incidental description here of where Jesus is teaching. He's in the temple, yes, but do you remember where is Jesus teaching in the temple? Where is he teaching in the temple? Look there in verse 20. He is teaching right next to the box of offerings. And with that, like Caleb's dad standing in front of the cross, do you get my drift? Jesus, in essence, John is telling us, he's saying, oh, you don't know God. And yet, what do they do with those offerings? They're giving it to the God they do not know. They have spent their entire lives teaching about this God, sacrificing, serving, offering these things to a God they do not know. To a God who is still hidden in mystery, and they do not know the truth. What have they spent their lives on, church? Nothing. Regrets. At least maybe not here, but at the end of their life when they stand before the God who is true and real, with Jesus sitting at his right hand, no doubt just sitting. I told you. I told you. That offering box represents a wasted life. Giving all that they were giving to a God they never knew. I want to just ask you this question. What are you living your life with? What are you giving yourself to? What are you spending your hours? What are you spending your life on? To what end? What is your goal? What is your purpose? What is your destiny? Are you like those Pharisees who just toss in the money? And when they did it, by the way, there was always this fanfare. Trumpets would blast. People, and, and I'm sure, maybe what they did, just because you would drop coins in it, maybe they went to the bank with, like, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars, all right? And then they said, give me all your coins. Because see, when you drop all those coins, can you imagine a hundred dollars worth of pennies? Man, did that sound like a lot. I'm just joking, maybe not. But the truth is, they would make this fanfare about how much they were giving. Do you remember the widow who gave her two mites, just the last little bit that she had? She gave it from her heart. 
to a God that she knew, obviously, and had surrendered to and said, I'm willing to sacrifice anything for my God. And here Jesus is saying that he is Yahweh. The one who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Before Abraham was, I am. The, the one who provides, always, day to day, provides, rescues us from our bondage to sin. That's who Jesus is. That's who we're called to give our lives to. So what are you sacrificing? What are you, how are you living your life? How are you spending the time? What a tragedy if you, throughout your life, have spent For a truth that was unknown. When I was 20, I turned that corner. I, I, I'd been a firm believer in Jesus. But then I realized, oh my goodness, he is so true. And he didn't just send me on this journey of acquiring knowledge and you know these evidences for the Christian faith, which blew me away. But he sent me on an even more important journey. And that was a journey of suffering. That was a journey of need. That was a journey in which hard as I worked to provide, there was shortfalls, and my God always provides, always, in the wilderness, in my wilderness, he provided, just like he did with the Israelites. Church, this is the God we serve. Loved with, to a thousand generations, poured out, he gives his life for you, he redeems you as Yahweh. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus that we stand for. Can you stand with me? I'm just going to ask, perhaps we make this somewhat of a solemn moment. And that we really allow the Spirit of God to speak with you. How or to what are you saying? So, Father, I'm, I'm asking you, that you give us hearts that are going to respond to this message. Because Jesus, as the I am, calls us and requires of us to follow up to him. And I just ask you, Father, as we enter into this time, if we find ourselves following after a that if in the end we realize that we've called ourselves Christians we were really misleading ourselves that even though we say we believed in God we were just religions God I just pray that you would give us a hunger deep longing passion Dislodge some of these lies that we've been holding on to. That you've forgotten us. That your punishment far outweighs your love. 
a lie the devil does to us. The sin is just too big for him. Father, for every single one of us, show us who you are. Yahweh, Yahweh, the gracious and compassionate God, maintaining love through a thousand generations. This is who you are. This is who you are. You are the I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am teacher and Lord. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true one. You're the source of our everything. Apart from you, we can bear no good. Thank you. 